from Refine Labs. This is State of Demand Gen. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Demand Gen Live. We are broadcasting live from Boston, Massachusetts tonight. So as you know, I've been kind of going back and forth between Boston and Austin, which has been amazing. So been in Austin a little while, and I think I'll be in Boston for the next couple of Demand Gen Live. So looking forward to that. Before that, today, I was in New York City, and I spent some time with leadership team at Google Cloud, which was an awesome experience. And I just wanted to share some like broad highlights of the things that I'm the things that we sort of t- the, the the messages that I was trying to convey, and I think it's going to be useful for a lot of people. So everyone knows Google's a math, you know, massive brand, but if you actually look at the Google Cloud, there's other players like AWS and Azure that are larger. And so, in the message here, it comes close to the heart because a lot of the companies that we work with are not the trillion dollar company that's owning the market like a Salesforce, we're working with companies that are challenging those with either a new category or a new spin on that on a on an existing category. And the message is, when you are going up against massive companies, you cannot play their game, you are going to get crushed, because they already have market share, they already have a lot of the other things ahead. So playing their game, spending money, doing the activities from a marketing standpoint in the same way, taking your product roadmap in the same way, having your sales engine work in the same way is going to lead to you continuing to be the whatever, third, fifth, whatever company in the category. And so the, the part of the message that I'm trying to get across and it worked, it's really worked for my business. So instead of talking about like that, I'm going to talk, talk through it on mine. Like, while everyone else is doing the things over here in 2019, I only did the things that were over here. And that really is the difference when you're going up against a hundred, you're one person or a smaller company and you're going up against the $100 million company, the billion dollar company. I'll give you another one. In 2017, I was working for the medical device company, Vapotherm. Our main main competitor was a $6 billion global company. They had way stronger distribution. They had way more market presence. They had way more clinical trials. They dominated the trade show, spending $500,000 on booths and sponsorships and events and all this different stuff. And before I got there, the company was playing the same game, trying to spend the same amount in when they're, you're a $30 million company, trying to spend the same amount on trade shows and sponsorships. You're not going to outspend them on clinical trials and clinical research. You're not going to build a bigger sales team than them. That's what the company was doing. And then what, when I came in, I was like, look, we're, not, we're definitely not going to win playing this game. What we need to do is when you think about doing things that this company doesn't do. So forget the events. Let's run a podcast every day. Forget scaling our sales team from 40 to 100 people when our CAC is, is fucking terrible. Let's figure out how to run Facebook ads so we can sell digitally. Forget having our field sales team doing X, Y, and Z. Let's sell this stuff e-com direct to consumer. Those are some of the thought processes that I think through when you're playing against major players. The advantage is that they're, they're major players. They're developed. They're slow. There's a ton of infrastructure. They, they get in their own way. So that is the advantage as a smaller, smaller company. One other thing, I mean, we talked about a bunch of stuff and it was great, but one other thing that continues to come up in every single conversation I have, whether it's with the company that does 250 million, whatever, $25 billion in revenue, whatever they do, probably more than that, or the company that does 20 million or the company that does 3 million, 
every single business out there struggles with attribution. The reason is because that the way that you do attribution only captures what is capturing the demand. I don't know how many times I can sort of beat this down. I mean, the people on the podcast are probably like, Chris, shut the fuck up. But, but it's still out there. Like, if you want to be able to have a create demand and a capture demand strategy and think about demand holistically, you're going to need different measurement models. So we're working on, we talked a lot about this concept of hybrid attribution. We're working on publishing that in the research product that we're calling the vault, the IP warehouse. So expect that to be published that in there in June. Our beta group will launch in June. The alpha group that participated early and were big believers in the product early on will be also getting back into the new platform in June. And I'll give this as a, as a little closing in. If you'd like to sign up for the waitlist and you haven't already, it's refinelabs.com slash waitlist. That waitlist is about 2,000 people. As the product continues to develop, we're going to let waves of new customers in, hand-selected, and continue to work through it. So would love if you want to, are interested for you to take a, be a part of it. Okay. Let's roll into the AMA. Let's do it. I have one of my favorites, Pablo, that wants to kick us off. I actually got a ton of really awesome questions submitted in advance. So we'll get to those soon too, but I got to love the live Q&A. Welcome, Pablo. Megan, every time you call me your favorite, it just makes me want to come back every single week and ask more questions. Thank you. I appreciate I know. it. <laughs> it's intentional. <laughs> I know you know. I know you know. Chris, what's up, man? Hey, Pablo. What's up, man? Great to have you here. Good to be here. Good to be here. Whenever the wife is either working late or out of town, I join. A couple of things. Number one, as, this, as the world opens up and you're getting more and more stages, I would love to request if you just start kind of announcing that ahead of time, man. I would love to figure, you know, I, I'm sure there's many people in this room that would travel to a conference to like meet you and talk to you for five minutes. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, will, I will do that. The next one up is the Work Smarter Conference in Belgium. I'm not sure you're going to travel that far to, to, to <laughs> see me, me but me I'll, I'll, keep you, uh, I'll keep you updated as we get more coming through. Yeah, like I, like I saw you talking at like... Um, there was one was in Boston, a, yeah. There was one in Boston, but you, you spoke at... Like my friend who's an insurance agent went to a conference that you were at. It was like the, like the talent... Traffic and Conversion Summit? No, not traffic. It was, it was like a culture one, man. Like it was like the personality assessment conference or something like that. Anyways, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah that was in Boston. Yeah, I did that in April. That was awesome. It was called Opti- Optima. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, That was good. All right. So as you are, as you're talking more and more as an entrepreneur, more so than a marketer, I'm picking up this idea that I'm sure you've been saying it all along and now it's really landing on you. And it's that your three things that you focus on to grow a business is strategy, talent, marketing. And while the, while the marketing thing has always been front and center for everybody, I would love if you expanded a little bit on the strategy piece and how how you continue to build kind of like the 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 moat between you and everybody else and and how you and how that evolves and kind of when when talent started becoming one part of that was that always intuitive to you or was that from that experience of when you had kind of like two of your first five hires I'd love to kind of just hear more of of that evolution of those other two of strategy and talent yeah let's talk strategy first and then we can get on to the the talent side. I talked about this in, at Google too, which I think is super interesting. Like the reason that I'm very good at strategy is because I have a recurring loop from customer insights 
to content creation, to distribution, to new customer insights, and all the way through all the time, right? So like we talk about having the, the community, the content, all the qualitative insights, all of those things and why that's the how I focus there is really where the strategy comes from. And then because it gets processed in my brain, right? There's tons of qualitative signals that I'm picking up here and there. I'm not putting it out here and putting it into a spreadsheet and being like, that one person liked that question, but this person said they didn't like it. I'm not doing that in a spreadsheet. And I get all of those insights and I formulate a strategy in my brain. And so I see patterns. I see holes in the market. I see underserved segments. I see different opportunities. I see opportunities to think about a different business model. And generally, because I have the insights, I can build a product and company roadmap over the next 6, 12, 18 months that I'm positive nobody else can build. Right? So that's the it's like a pure and the other thing that's really interesting is I spend zero seconds thinking about what anybody else is doing. Literally no time. Right. So all I'm focused on is the customer and where where my team is going, which breeds differentiation, but not for the sake of differentiation, but because we, we literally just approach it in a completely different way than other people do. So the customer insights loop is huge. Most companies don't do it. And the not paying attention to whatever else is going on in your market so that you have feature parity or get in a Gartner quadrant against other companies, like none of that stuff matters to me. When you started, did you design that deliberate loop first? It wasn't deliberate, but it it was uh, in, like almost an instinct. You know what I mean? Like as I've gone through this since like 2014, when you figure out that you like go out, talk to customers, get the insights, and then do something in marketing or product or business that is way better because you have the insights, you'll never go back. So to me, it's always starting with the customer. And it's just a le- it's a lesson that not, a- not enough marketers and business professionals get pushed to learn. And when, when it comes to talent, you know, I heard you say something like it's obvious that you guys are putting culture. I, I love the new podcast, the uh, talent destination, just like the, the terminology, all of it. Amazing. You're putting like, I love that you guys are putting culture on a pedestal. You said something recently that in the one about like consultants, right? Like it was a, it was a podcast, maybe the last one of the penultimate one, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, like a podcast for consultants, demand generation for consultants. You said something along the lines of that your pricing model and the way that you plan for profits and like a service business um, has a big effect on things. Does that is that heavily correlated to pricing in service and outcomes, or or however you think of pricing in order to like reverse engineer what you can invest in on talent? Is there some kind of correlation there? Mm, I think what I was saying was a little bit different than how you interpret it, which is cool. So we can we can clarify when you look at what other what company, what will get compared to right now, like a commodity marketing agency, those agencies can't think for themselves. They can't acquire customers for themselves. They can't hire top talent. So they end up charging whatever, a hundred bucks an hour. They're paying some person that isn't very talented, like 30 bucks an hour. If they ever needed to get to the level of the talent required to actually do the job, they would have no money left over because they can't charge price because they don't have a brand, they don't create demand, and they're not differentiated. So 
by staying focused on a segment that really values what you do, it allows you, it creates differentiation. It creates an idea that you are the only game in town and it, it allows you to have the flexibility on pricing to command what is required in order to actually do the job, which is why a lot of companies pay $5,000 a month for a LinkedIn ad agency. And then they think they think they're getting a sweet deal when they don't hire us. And what they do is they just pay some other company to waste $50,000 a month of their money. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're saving money because it's only $5,000 a month. And it's like, actually, you're spending $55,000 total in the investment. Just five of it's going to this and 50 is going over here. And it's a it's a waste, right? I want on the talent side, I want to cover like take this in a little bit of a different, a different direction, because it really is like the power in our business, culture, sticking to our values, thinking long term, leadership that that leads, leads in the in that way, how we recruit and who we bring onto the team. All of these are elements to why we're going to build a very impactful company that makes a big impact on this overall industry and market. And at the beginning, it wasn't a huge focus for me because I hadn't experienced something like it before. At the beginning, like we were all so small um, and shout out to Megan for really like coming in and, and making this a priority and making a lot of these things happen. It's great. She's do, she does the talent destination podcast for a reason. And so the culture element is a huge advantage for us. I'd be happy to answer a follow-up if you want to go specific. And I know you're trying to build your business too. So if you want to go more specific, I'd be happy to talk through something. And I, I can just tell, right? Like it's, it's so obvious that it's such a huge advantage for you guys. I think it hit for me. It was a while ago. You had a, you had like a recruiter on and you were talking about how right now talent is like the ultimate game changer. And this like release of geographic boundaries of where you have to live to where you have to work is like the ultimate game changer to like recruiting talent. And I wonder when you, when you kind of ramped up, what was the first stuff that you started putting in place? Were you, were you doing like personality tests? Were you, you know, early on when each hire was so, so much more of like a, you know, so much more of a marginal difference. Yeah. I mean, before I answer that, one thing that I want to say here is the exact same approach that I take with customers. How do I understand them? How do I get the customer insights? How do I build a product roadmap and things that they actually want because I listen to what they said. We do the same thing on the talent side, right? We spend a lot of time with people. We gather employee insights all the time through surveys, one-on-ones, qualitative insights, anonymous submissions, and things like that. Tons of different angles to get these insights so that we can build a roadmap and cater to what people want and where people think that we have gaps that we need to fill. No personality like tests as of yet, although there's some things like what predictive index is doing that I think is is fascinating. But what we started to do was a a pretty detailed technical assessment of skills inside of the interview process. That's like the stage two of our interview process. Third stage is like more of a presentation or working session, depending on the role. And through those two, you get, does this person have the technical skills, right? The problem with most companies is that there's nobody in their business that has the deep enough technical skills to evaluate whether the demand gen person is actually good because nobody else in the company knows it. So they're just looking at a resume and guessing. The number one reason that companies fail in hiring this specific type of talent is because nobody in their business has taken 
the time to actually learn it to know whether or not someone's good or not. That's one piece. The second piece on this like working session or thing like that is you get a really good sense. We do it on the, at the leadership level and for specific roles. How are we going to collaborate as a unit? So we'll pick a topic that's within or a topic or a current business problem or something like that that's inside of this person's strength zone and then invite three or f- more people that we would be work how we would work it on together and simulate what would that look like how does it feel do we collaborate well together does person adding the insights the value the perspective that we need for this role so putting in a little bit more like of practical stuff instead of just like 20 questions in an interview has worked really well for us I wanted right. to add Pablo let me interject yeah, because please. I think you sort of brushed on this Chris but I think and whether you were doing this explicitly or not, like we don't really convince anyone to join the company, right? We put out our perspective, our philosophy, our values, what we're about, and the people that are attracted to that come to us, right? And like I, in every single interview, I'm like, I'm not here to convince you to take this job. In fact, I'll tell you about some of the hard parts about working here. <laughs> and like, do you still, do you still want to come here after that? Right. And that's how Chris and I got connected. We were just both posting on LinkedIn and that was how we ended up starting to do some content together and then, you know, starting to to work together eventually. So that's a huge part of it. We invest a ton of time putting out information about what it's like to work here. So the people that come to us are, they know what they're getting into. And then it becomes a matter of like having a consultation to assess fit. I think that's a huge part especially going from five to 120 people and why we're able to do that so quickly. Yeah. It's sort of like the marketing versus sales thing, right? Yeah. Most of the, like most people will qualify themselves in or out before they ever talk to us. Just like how most customers should qualify themselves in or out before they ever talk to your sales team. Yeah. It's clear. Like Camille said it in the chat, like you guys are demand generation for talent. Right? Like it's really this um, is how demand, gen, demand gen for everything. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. I love it. Demand gen for what you want in life, right? Um, la- la- last thing, um, last thing that I'm just kind of fascinated by is this idea that you now have such an oversight of the market that you're telling people what quarterly projection, you know, like what what the last quarter happened. So I'm, um, you know, like we're now two thirds of the way through this quarter. Are you still seeing a downward trend? What are you, what are you looking to see? I, I would love to. As a business operator, is there something that either worries you or you see particularly opportunistic of what's happening right now in the economy? I haven't assessed the data at a broad enough scale because May is not finished yet and assessing things mid-month has never worked well for me. So I wait till the end. So I haven't made an assessment since the end of April. In our own business experience, we are looks to be we'll be returning to at least normal levels of Q1 in terms of pipeline in May. So we'll see how that looks for across the board of our customer base. There are still tons of like news about companies laying off people, right? And there was another one, Klarna, uh, one today. I was reading up, by the way, this is sort of off topic, but the company Carvana was burning $280 million a month. <laughs> how do you even do that, <laughs> right? What? So like uh, these things are still happening, but the reason that they're happening is not necessarily part of the economy anymore. It's literally just poor management. Too much cash, not enough accountability, thinking that it's always going to be good. And then just, you know, having to lay off thousands of people at some point, I think is, 
is pretty upsetting. But like I mentioned in my post today, the way that I see this playing out is that we're there's a slowdown for somewhere between 30 and 90 days. It started around April 1 in tech. It was hitting the public markets before that, but it really hit the private markets right around the beginning of April, in my view. And then 30 to 90 days from there, so somewhere between May 1 and July 1, companies are going to have to get back out and do things. So, And when they go out and do things, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. Just like in June of 2020, Zoom and Uber Eats and some other things really won will have the same effect here. It's just not exactly clear how that's going to play out. My hypothesis is that one of the things that companies will need to do is that they're going to have to figure out how to create demand. And so so some things that they spend money on that are focused on, I mean, they pretty much only spend money on capturing demand, let's be honest. So those investments like in content syndication, heavy in paid search, heavy in just general sales talent, both SDRs and AEs, all capture demand things. I think that that budget will start to move to demand creation level strategies. That's one thing that I see in go-to-market that feels obvious to me. The other things are are not as obvious. But the thing that I know for sure is that we're still going where we're going. <laughs> it's just I think that we're going to get there. We're going to get there faster. Um, but no, I I would say that. It seems like the, although there's still a lot of news about it, it seems like the dust has settled a little bit. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Pablo. All right. I got a few more questions. I'm going to bring on live before we get to some of the pre-submitted ones. Aaron, I'm going to bring you on next. And then Pasha, you're up after. Aaron, welcome to Demand Gen Live. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the uh, show. I'm a longtime listener probably fueling a lot of your dark social, you come up in regular conversations within our department and sales, <laughs> customer success all over. So, so awesome. Awesome. Great to have you here. So yeah. So I, so I work in the IT infrastructure space, data center, cloud services. Uh, so Google cloud, you talk about that. The enterprise cloud services are very much a part of our business. So I actually, I just finished drafting our future demand plan that is based around a lot of what I've learned here. A lot of the focus is around demand creation. Now, I'm going to pose two of the challenges and I'll, I'll start first. Well, first of all, it is like pulling teeth to get SMEs to do this. So what I propose is very much at this point, pie in the sky and I'm racking my brain for ways that we can, we can source this talent like what you're doing. Um, these these are the technical leaders. These are the I'm well aware. Yep. 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 And not so easy to get them to participate. Been there before. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. So I have a couple of ideas, but I want to I want to hear yours. So one, what are your thoughts on? In <laughs> you're going to laugh because sh we shouldn't have to. But what are your thoughts on some sort of incentive to um, to bring some of these? Um, SMEs on board. And I'm not talking the C-levels. I'm talking if, if we could get a step or two below to start pooling and dividing those resources. How big is the company? Everyone, oh, we have about two or 300 people. But the, but people, it's not seen as a priority totally. as far as their time yeah, goes. Yeah. I've and worked I've at a 300-person yeah, company where the SME is a VP and they're like, I don't have time for this shit. I got other stuff to do. And totally. It's just, yeah. So I, I'm, I've been here before. What is the skill that you really need? Because the idea that like you're not going to get the C level, but you're going to go a couple levels down seems risky to me. Like, so what do you think? Like, in an ideal world, what would it be for you? 
There are a couple parts to it. In an ideal world, if we could get some of those um, high-level engineers, the cloud engineers that are, well, actually our, our CTO would be awesome, right? But if we were good to go down a level, the ones that are really crafting these strategies or crafting and executing the strategies to help companies optimize their costs, you know, move to containerized strategies, deploy hybrid implementations, and, and really evaluate how these enterprises are deploying their infrastructure. I mean, even if they just... Is this a service business? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Yes, but yep. we, you know, it's also real estate in a way, right? It's co-location because we have, we have data centers around the world. I get it. Yep. It's, so it's a combination. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing here is that, like, I think you got to decide who you're marketing to, right? If you're marketing to the CIO or the CISO or, or whoever's making that decision, then your CTO is probably most appropriate. If you're marketing to the, the cloud architect or whoever that is, then you probably want to have the person that's one or two levels below the CTO who's more into the details, doing the implementations, things like that. I think you got to decide who it is because I think you probably like in an ideal world, you'd probably do both. But at the beginning, you're only going to be able to do one. So let's just let's just try and decide which one in an ideal world would you rather do first? Yeah, I mean, it's because it, it, you're right. It is both. There's a big buying committee at stake. Mm-hmm. I know which one I'd rather do. Yeah. So let's just, let's just play it out. So, doesn't mean that that's the one we're going to yeah, secure. But you would rather do the executive. Yeah. Right. And at, at yep. this point, that may not be the likely one. So but let's we... play it out because you will play that one out. But then you could almost play the exact same thing out with the other person. So it's fine. Okay. So what I did in this situation that we had a you know VP of medical education and a director of clinical and scientific affairs and these people that really knew what they were talking about internally, but were had way too busy to ever like interview a physician for our podcast or you know create a blog about this clinical trial or anything else that I was asking for the thing that I did was twofold the first thing is that I went out to the physician I read up on the clinical data I have an engineering degree in biomedical engineering I can figure out what they're talking about I understand statistics I read the clinical trials I talked to a bunch of people about what they thought about it And then after about three months, I had a pretty good handle about what these people were talking about, what their perspective was. And then I went out and did five podcast episodes with physicians on my own to get started. So is there a way where you're able to get it started with industry experts to just get the wheels turning so that people are looking at, huh, like that's what they're doing is interesting. So that's one angle of like, how do I get people to start looking at this? The second one that worked really well for me is to create environments that these people would want to speak at anyway. So I would get them like set up to speak at the conference that they wanted to go to. And we're not excited to do a webinar with 500 people, but they were pumped to go to a conference and talk to 20 people in a room. It doesn't matter to me. I, d- I just set it up that way because that's what they wanted. And I got the same, same exact content that I would have gotten anyway. But you can put them in situations where they would want to do it anyway. You're not going to get the full-blown evangelist out of this situation. Like You're not going to get the person that's posting on social, that's engaging in communities. It's just this. If they're not open to doing just what we're talking about right now, you're never going to get that. So what you want to get is the initial creation motion from them. So what can you take control over in the podcast interviewing external people as a way to get that started? 
And then how can you put these people in situations that they wanted to, they would want to be in anyway, so that you can record and capture the content in a way that you don't have to incentivize or things like that. The cadence that we're at right now, where we record like three or four podcasts a week is like, is not where you need to start. Like a win would, a win would be like once a month or twice a month. I'm able to get these people to sit down and have a conversation, do Q and a with our audience, like talk on a webinar, speak at this conference, do this micro event, get invited on this podcast, right? So the, the frequency doesn't need to be high. What you need to do is you need to get them in the position where they, where they get it, right? You just need to get them in the position where they get it. Like smart people will see the light bulb go off and be like, huh, like I thought this was not important, but then I just went to this thing and there was you know, 75 people here and they were asking me really smart questions and they were listening to what I was saying. This is, this is actually pretty cool. I'd like to do this again. Right. So you need to get them yeah. to the realization where it's like, we're not over here playing in the sandbox people. We're over here talking to customers, driving business results and, yeah. Yeah. you know, subject matter expert level people, especially in technical functions, just usually don't get it until they see it. Yeah. So for the first one, for the interviews, I'm perfectly comfortable interviewing in general. I've actually had a podcast the challenge is I don't yet have the level of fluency and I'm concerned about not asking the right questions because it's so technical. Simplify. Yeah. 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 And, and maybe if I came to the table with some, some prefabricated questions, that would help and then just let them talk. So that's one thing. Yeah. Alternatively, but, you could pick a topic, either get a speaker or pay for an external speaker, right? And then have it mostly be like, have them talk and have it mostly be Q&A. And you get some market research insights, you'll get so there's, there's a lot of different angles to this, but I'm trying to like, uh, basically eliminate the excuses, because there's definitely a way to get this done. Yeah. So the other part regarding the micro events, these, these leaders do show up. So the partner community that that goes into my second, um, the second piece, second question, the partner channel is is major, it's a major part of our go to market. So it's not all inbound marketing sourced, um, but we uh, partner is under us as well, partner marketing. So these leaders speak at micro partner events. So that's a place where that second part could be tackled potentially. Potentially, but what I've, I mean, it might be different in your industry, but I've worked in a lot of companies that work through partners or distribution channels or things like that. And I'll tell you, the stuff that's discussed between the company and their partner is not fucking interesting to the customer. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? A lot it's of like times there's a different. It's on. a different. Yeah. Re- it's the yeah. The, it's a B two B relationship versus a direct to consumer relationship. And you just like what I've found is that like most companies only spend time between them and their partner, and never never with the customer. And there's a lot of B two B companies, especially like more outdated ones. I'm just going on a tangent here. This doesn't have much to do with you, but a lot of companies work through primarily distribution partners and they get their customer insights from the partner. And then what do you, what do you get? You don't get customer insights. You get what's best for your partner. So that, yeah, I recognize that wasn't, isn't related to you, but um, I'm hearing a lot of different talk about like partner channels being important. And I'm going to tell you that, I'm sure that there are instances where partner channels matter, but whoever's closest to the customer wins and whoever controls the customer experience wins. I know that HubSpot built a great model using partner agencies and things like that. I know that it works in things like AWS and some cloud 
things like that. But gosh, I'll say in most instances, it's better to own the experience yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So how would you leverage the partner community, if at all, in this process? Mm, I personally wouldn't. I would just focus on the cut. If, the, if they can bring in customers, right? If they, if they want to create the event and then we provide the speaker and the recording, like there are ways to do it, but I think it would be equally as, as easy and potentially more effective and faster to just do it on your own. And then when it starts to become successful, then there's ways to inject it into the, the channel. You know what I mean? But I would, I would focus on making it work with the customer first before you start introducing other stakeholders who are going to bring in their own agenda. Cool. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Aaron. Great questions. Yeah, thank you. Great to have you on, Aaron. All right, Pasha, you're up next. I'm excited to bring you on so you can ask your question live. And we got a few YouTube questions coming in, which I'll get to right after. Welcome, Pasha. Let's do it. Hey, good to talk to you again, Chris. Hey, what's uh, up? Good about, to see you. Uh, good. Yeah, I talked to you about a month ago, and it was that week that we put in our month notice at our day job, and now we're on our own um, as of this cool. Friday. Well, stealth mode Congrats. for six months. So. Thank you for that. So I'm in a bit of a, it's an interesting place that I'm in. And, you know, this is also a little bit based upon what I heard last week. I'm fully in the demand mindset. And I've been in that way the last three years. I think listening to you crystallized it, right? I'm also a HubSpot partner. And that HubSpot partnership gives me a lot of opportunity when I go into my target market, which is things series B, C, even up to D, SaaS and cyber clients, right? I'm able to help them with their infrastructure. I'm able to help really align sales, marketing, and support. And they buy into what it, what I call myself Chris Walker Light, where I'm like, look, we, you know, I talked to a company today. They're like, well, we're trying to build the brand through Google. I said, I don't know why you're doing that. We need to, we need to change that, you right? Can't. That's, I get, that's not possible. Yes, <laughs> it's not possible. I'm like, but you know, these are just some of the conversations I'm having. But where this, where the rubber meets the road is when we start getting into attribution, right? And obviously HubSpot has its, what probably is an outdated methodology of life cycle stages. And yeah, it's really not about HubSpot, by the way. I just want to clarify, like all of the attribution yeah. tools have all the same technical limitations and all the effectiveness of each of those tools is declining by the minute. Yep. Because of privacy, dark social things like that is the reason why. So it has not no knock on HubSpot or Visible or blah, 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 the million other tools that are trying to solve this in the same exact way and it doesn't work. Like, just wanted to clarify that for people. But yes, their HubSpot is one. We we use their data. We've tried other tools. We don't see any meaningful difference. Yeah, and I think where I'm getting stuck is clients, are they get so stuck on that original source, right? So that's direct traffic, that's organic, you know, organic search, traffic, direct traffic, or paid search, that's it. Bingo. Yeah. It's it's 80% of everything. And so every we business. get stuck and we, we can't seem to move past that. And when I, when I try to pause it, like, hey, let's look at the website as that main source, I'm getting so much pushback. How did you get past that with your clients? Like, how did you sell in that methodology? Because I feel like it resonates until it's time to be like, yes, we're not going to report on this every two weeks, right? We're not going to say, 
and again, direct traffic for most of my clients is eating up 50, 60, sometimes 70% of their total traffic. We know that's not the case because direct traffic just means we can't attribute it. So I was just wondering what your perspective was on that. In the earlier days, we would just justify based on correlation of results. So it's like, hey, we know that attribution is not going to work. I'm going to educate you on that. I know I'm going to do that in the sales process. I know that two months later, you're going to forget everything that we said. But <laughs> when we look back and we say, here's what was happening for you know quarter over quarter for the past six months before you started working with us, then boom, you start working with us. And then what happens over the next quarter to two quarters? It's just for most often undeniable. You know what I mean? It's like, and then there's there's some companies where it's like I where literally like either it's come from CFO or someone where they're like, you know, I get that the first quarter we started working with us, our pipeline is up by fifty five percent, but we're stopped spending and we're gonna figure out how to attribute this. And I'm like, what what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like it's the stupidest thing in that businesses do. It's like you have something that's working, and instead of going to figure out how to make it work harder you stop doing it and figure out how to fucking measure something that you shouldn't have to measure. So that's one piece. Now where we're at is basically like companies come in and it's like, if you don't buy into the idea that attribution software is only focused on capturing demand and we're over here to help you create demand, if you're not on board with leveraging a different system for attribution, a different method to quantify the effectiveness of create demand strategies and channels, then Go somewhere else and keep running your $250,000 a month in Google ads. You know what I mean? Like, there's really no way around it. If you are not open to changing the attribution, then anything that you do create demand will always fail. And still, some companies just literally don't get it because I don't know what to say. I get the I get continuous questions on certain things that are just based on totally outdated principles that have just been pounded into the market for 10 years about how attribution is supposed to work that came from vendors and analyst firms and just like people that are literally just don't understand what they're talking about, but listening to what's happening here. Like that's one of them. Another one are, are all these outdated principles on conversion rate optimization. And so it's like, yeah, if you're trying, to, if you're running Google ads to send 100,000 visitors per month to a landing page that they don't want to convert on and you want to try and get them to convert, then yeah, the color of the button matters, how many fields on the form matter, different things like that. But when you're trying to convert 100 B2B buyers per month that are going to go out and buy your 100K ACV software tool, the CRO things don't matter. Yeah. It just doesn't, you know, like the extra field in the form just doesn't matter. If they can't, if the difference between them converting on your form is whether there's four fields or five, you think they're going to go through a six-month sales cycle to buy your stuff? There's no way, you know? And so it's just like yeah. there are just outdated principles that people take and th that usually come from either B2C or low-intent B2B lead gen and then apply it across the board to new things in the world. And I'm working hard to create tangible amount of data so that people understand it, create research and other forms of intellectual property so that people can get these insights and then apply them into a new way of thinking about it. Yeah. Last question, I guess, around your pipe framework. I know, I think you all have a webinar tomorrow with Cassidy that I don't think I can make, but is that something that you're kind of releasing to the market? It's like, this is the way that we're doing it. Something that can 
that somebody like me could use to counteract. And I wasn't, I wasn't knocking HubSpot earlier, but when I'm explaining their spiel and I'm going through like the way it's set up, I'm locking myself into MQL, right? Because that's built into the lifecycle stage in the software. So I'm at this weird crossroads because I feel so strongly about demand gen and what you've been talking about and what I've felt in my career. But then I'm also, you know, selling a solution, which again, it gives me the ability to be in the CRM and see all that, but I'm like constricted. So just curious. Yeah. I got to knock on HubSpot real quick, because if you go to the HubSpot Academy and then you take the, one of their like intro classes, them all. they teach you that a lead, the definition of a lead is someone that's willing to exchange their email address for content. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's just like, old, you it's gotta, old, you gotta update right? your stuff. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not a lead at all. And you're educating an entire generation of marketers in the wrong way. So I will knock HubSpot's got a great, great product, but I will knock them for that specific point. What was the question again? I was so excited to say that. that no, I, I mean, it was your, your pipe framework. Like, oh, yeah, be yeah. Happy. It would, We're it would gonna... be great to have something to counteract it, you know, and be like, hey, look, this is the actual framework that I'm like referring to. So I could even build around it from a technology standpoint. I mean, what I've done is I've built out, I took your exact equation using a third-party tool and built out pipeline velocity report because they don't have that technically in HubSpot. So I'm yeah, trying to do you, these you won't get that in a CRM. You got to post-process that somewhere yeah. else in SaaS or a s- spreadsheet or something like that. Yeah, we are going to release this framework most likely sometime in June through our product that we are calling Intellectual Property Warehouse called The Vault. So we will be releasing this framework most likely uh, as a uh, PLG or free part of the product to give marketers an alternative to their MQL, SQL, hamster wheel that they've been running on for, you know, 20 plus years. Mm. So it's different definitions. It's different words and acronyms. It's different stages in the process, which allow companies to reset like what what a lot of businesses need to do. And I'm, it's interesting because companies are already making the transition to the pipe framework that we're talking about just without our definitions and names. But what people realize is that MQLs are a waste of time. They're poor, poorly defined. Like it's ju- just as good as picking out of a email address out of a contact database and then firing off emails or things like that. It's just so, totally useless. So they're picking that up. They're converging on the only people that we want to talk to or send to our past to sales are people that fit our ICP criteria and ask to talk to sales. Because otherwise, yep. Our salespeople have better shit to do than talk to people that don't want to talk to them and don't want to buy, right? So companies are already making this transition and the pipe framework essentially revolves around that specific definition at the beginning. This is how we define a pipe conversion from a graphically qualified high intent website conversion that that converts to a closed one opportunity at somewhere between three and 5%. We haven't run the, enough data at scale to figure out exactly what that definition is going to be. But the definition of the conversion is going to be based on a sales win rate metric, right? So it creates basically like if you're building a manufacturing facility, you have quality control measures in place. You understand each different step, what's going on, and make sure that something that you're doing at the last uh, at the first step is not negatively impacting everything that you do in the last step. And at the moment, there's just no quality control. So at every stage of the process, you got market, you got brand and then demand gen and then SDRs who may be under sales or marketing and then you got AEs 
and they're all accountable to this little slice of the pie and RevOps is supposed to be accountable to the whole thing. But let's be honest, in, pra- in, in practice, it's not what's happening. So there's really nobody on the marketing side that's accountable to any anything. So yeah, hoping that this this framework gives people an alternative and basically is the ammo that people need to go to their CFO and to go to their CEO and say, the way that we're doing marketing is busted. We've been listening to analyst firms and technology vendors and consulting firms like McKinsey for too long, and none of these companies actually do anything. And we got to figure out how to get our strategy from people that actually do the work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm signed up. I appreciate the time. Cool. Great questions. And I'm happy to hear that you're uh, on your way. Yeah, news. man. LinkedIn's been cranking too. I uh, I love the whole, I mean, I just, I'll say it again, Refine Labs. I've been an agency guy for so long. Everything y'all are doing is, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's something I never thought I'd see, honestly. So props to you guys and we'll continue to support. Cool. Appreciate it. Thanks, Pasha. Actually, quick follow-up question on this topic from someone watching the YouTube live stream. How would you define a lead? Is it someone who books a consultation? So maybe quick definition clarity there. Mm, I'm not really using, we're not using the lead terms anymore because it's hard to have people, when you say lead, everyone thinks about a certain thing. You know what I mean? So what we're calling it is we're calling it a pipe conversion, which is agreed upon definition of an ICP with the the business sales marketing beforehand. So you know who the ICP is firmographically. Do they fit the ICP? Got to be one part of it. The second part, did they convert on a high intent conversion, which is going to be only things that say, I want to talk to your sales team about buying this stuff now, get a demo, get pricing if you're still, if you still don't publish pricing, which is not cool, or talk to sales, something like that, or direct book a meeting with a rep or a solutions consultant. So those are like some of the things. And then the next piece that we're going to put into it, which we, I just don't have enough data yet, but we'll add on to the definition that that pipe conversion needs to convert to a closed one opportunity at somewhere between one in 20 and one in 10. I think ours right now, we went at 12%. So one out of, uh, maybe it's more like nine percent so like one out of 11 raw pipe conversions qualified high intent conversions become a customer for us which means that our sales team needs to only talk to 11 people to close a deal that's worth like 500k arr feels pretty good to me oh yeah Got a few more questions that have been submitted over YouTube and in advance let me get a few of these in before I bring someone else on live anyone on with us now, drop me a DM if you want to come on live. So this is a fun one. What's it like to be in the boot up phase as a customer of Refine, particularly learning the way that you guys look at pipeline, dark social. It's an exercise in having faith, learning new things, and unlearning years of ROI-based direct attribution modeling. So I guess like kind of putting... The, themselves in one of our customers' shoes, wanting to know kind of what the the first 30, 60, 90 days are like. Yeah. So the goal of our business is to further the evolution of marketing and demand generation, which includes how you think about it, how you execute it, and how you measure it. And so when we work with customers, we're going to be focusing on those things. 
like how you think about it is a lot of like the unlearning. What do you need to unlearn to make space for the things that actually make sense today? Because they're in conflict. It's like the things that you used to know are now holding you back, right? So working on some of those things. Implementing the measurement model is one of the first things that we do. So implementing the pipe framework inside of their Salesforce or HubSpot instance. Also implementing our hybrid attribution model, which are two things that basically are required in order to drive, in order to go out and create demand and then effectively communicate the value of it back to your business once you do it. It's so crazy how many businesses want to create demand, drive revenue growth, things like that. And they don't make the steps. So they just literally go into it and it's set up to fail. And I'm like, in three months, this project's going to fail because you're not going to put one field on your form that helps you measure the success of this, right? So setting up the measurement is a big part of it. We're starting to get the wheels at that point turning on what we call like our experimentation phase. So launching a lot of different experiments, product marketing, social proof, content marketing, thought leadership, things like that across a lot of different social channel create demand channels so that could be mainly facebook instagram linkedin things like that second layer we'd experiment with later would be like a reddit twitter quora things like that but launching these experiments with the goal of within the first three to six months dialing in we have a channel audience content match we know that if we do this it's like our stacking growth framework experiments qualitative positive signals, which could be in the form of comments, could be in the form of self-reported attribution data, could be in the form of qualitative insights from the sales team on their calls, things like that, positive signals, then figuring out, can we make this repeatable? If we keep doing it, are we going to get a similar outcome out? And then from there, that's probably hopefully somewhere in the next the three to six months, we're at that level. And then we're figuring out how to operationalize and scale, which is figure out what more resources do we need? What processes do we need to put in place with both your team and ours to actually effectively operationalize that, right? It's different to do a podcast once a week versus what we do at our business now, right? The topics, the event management the post-production, getting the content out, me actually posting the content and engaging. It's like operationalized now for this channel to really work. And it's basically at, at close to full scale. So working through that level of a process with the goal of within 90 days, the positive signal is you're getting more qualified meetings with your sales team through their website. And your sales team says, I love talking to these people. Can you keep sending me them? And then between months three and six, there's going to be a lift, a meaningful lift in qualified pipeline when we measure it on last time we measured it on average, it was 67% across our customer base lift in qualified pipeline created, not open pipeline, created pipeline. Open pipeline is a very poor metric to measure marketing on, in my opinion. Uh, so not all open pipeline, but actually pipeline created through your website within a specific period of time. That number is going up. And then continuing to work on scaling those things out. So if I have to summarize, a big part of it is how you actually measure. I skipped a, a pretty important step, I guess. I, gl I glossed over it, which is that like optimizing the inbound buying experience from website conversion to first meeting is a huge part of this. Most companies just simply because of how they think about MQLs and high volume, they really, really mess up the high intent buying experience. And they pass a CTO 
that's totally qualified and 90% done buying to an SDR for Bant. And so we help them fix that because, and we'll just send mystery shoppers through the process, take notes about all the things that are wrong from the buyer's perspective, and then help them iron out their sales process because there's no sense in going and creating a bunch of demand if your sales process sucks. So yeah, those are some of the different ways that we help. I love that. And shout out to Camille. We have a future RL customer on live tonight. I was excited to hear that. <laughs> All right. I have Neil who is joining us. So I'm going to sneak in another live question before I ask a few more that came in. Neil, I recognize you from LinkedIn. Welcome to Demand Gen Live. Thanks. Um, only heard about the show maybe a month to six weeks ago, but um going the same way that the whole audience seems to go, which is right down the rabbit hole and trying to catch up with all the podcast episodes. And now I have a new event on my Tuesday nights every week, it seems. And uh, so um, kudos to you guys for doing this. I think it's a wonderful format. It's uh, There's something special uh, happening. Um, awesome. Great to have you here. Um, so my company uh, is about to open a position. We're hiring for a very generic sort of campaigns manager position. It's got uh, a lot of like old sounding stuff in it that I'm trying to get us to move away from that. Even like I feel like marketing leadership is totally bought in. I'm moving away from things like content syndication you know, webcasts, but not like the good webcasts, like the old style webcasts that are basically content syndication, you know, someone interviewing like one of our leaders. Um, and so I, I don't think I can, uh, we, we just had a near miss with this position. It was going to be an events person. And I was like, we need to get away from that because I felt like it was the same thing. So we, we just dodged a bullet and I was like the only person advocating for not hiring that position. Uh, and now we've got this one. And I don't think I can change the position that we hire again, but I'm trying to nudge this in the right way and ensure that we can like attract the talent that we need to actually help us make an impact and grow and achieve the type of stuff that you guys talk about. Um, so yeah. what do you want to have happen? Like what's your ideal? I want someone who can come in and run programs that will have a chance of, of generating pipeline, right? So I, ideally, I, I want them to find a new channel to, I guess, like that, that seems to be, I think that's the ultimate goal of leadership here. And so my goal is to help us find a new channel and ensure that this person can actually be successful and that we're not just going to hire them to fail because I feel like the way it's written today, they're not going to succeed and nothing I can do is going to like change that. Yeah. Is this person going to report to you? I'm uh, not initially, potentially down the line, okay. I'm just a super small team. So there's like, but of us full-time today in marketing before we talk about this campaigns manager finding a new channel what's working the best for you right now <laughs> so um yeah it, it it's adwords but we we only do uh high intent uh search that's that's really the sole focus uh today like uh content was just turned on late last year so uh, we're hyper focused on everything. All the traffic that we're trying to get from AdWords should be you know, demo demo request ready. Um, and we are generating you know qualified pipe. We had closed one, one quarter one from AdWords, um, and we think we're on the track to build on that. So so that is the marketing channel that is effective. You know where I'm going to go with this, right? Yes. Or no? Maybe not yet. 
obviously, well, already, I'm already pulling the organization more and more into like, like I've never had the create demand mindset. So like you guys have helped me ramp up my learning and like move outside of SEO, right? Like mm-hmm. I made that SEO comment on LinkedIn too, earlier today oh, to man. you. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know that was just, you, but that was funny. It's, it's really funny because you have Gaetano on here and I love his perspective because he's obviously heavy on SEO. And I know you're not like totally cold on SEO. You appreciate that. But really, like it's a capture channel, right? Mm-hmm. And the challenge, especially in startups, is like you have to move the market. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'm totally like we're on board with LinkedIn and like I'm yeah. like the distributor guy here, right? I own distribution. So I'm getting us going on LinkedIn. We have you know, the, the content production engine come into life. And so like, I just feel like, where are you going here? So here's, you know? yeah, yeah. Here, here's where I'm at. Like, I see this a lot where what it, it doesn't matter, right? Like company doesn't have something figured out. And then they're like, we're going to hire someone and that person's going to figure it out. The thing that I've seen work way more is that you figure out how to make it work. And then you know who you need to hire very well right? It's almost like doing it in the reverse. And so it's going to force you to understand how is this going to work for my customer? How am I going to measure it? What thing do I actually need? And then I know that it works. I know the skills that it requires in order to do it so I can hire the right person. And if that person can't do the job, I know that it's them, not the channel, right? So you set the person you're hiring up for way more success. You're going to be way more clear on who you need, what type of person that you need. And you're much more likely to attract a high potential or high performing person because they already see the system running and working and they can see themselves plug into it. So a little bit of a slowdown to speed up strategy, but I think it would work well for you in this situation. I think that it's good advice. It's uh, sort of like that. I think the one way I didn't think of going, right? It's all about it's important to remember to slow down, right? Especially in startup land, it's always about going fast, 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 but I appreciate that. So cool. It's always worked for me at all levels. And I talk about like, if you're the head of marketing at a series A or series B company, like, I hear some people that are like, we're going to hire like this person to produce our podcast, but we've never recorded a podcast episode, we don't have a content creation engine. And we're going to hire like a marketing specialist to go and do out of thin air, create our best performing program. And it's like, no head of marketing, you're going to be the host of the podcast. You're going to get it to 25 episodes. You're going to figure out how to measure it. You're going to figure out who the guests are, how to get people to the events, how to promote it, where to distribute it. And then you're going to hire people. And so there's just like a, there's an element of, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm talking about more broadly now at this point, but like there's an element of people don't want to get their hands dirty and it's almost like you need to in order to develop the strategy you got to be in there doing it especially with things that you if you knew how to make it work you'd already be doing it right so it's almost like you got to go and figure out how to how to do that oh, that makes perfect sense i totally agree with you on that and like everything that you've also said recently maybe it was a while ago honestly i'm out of order with the podcast but a leadership that like gets in and, and understands the data, right? Like, so being the CRM guy, like I totally agree. Like I am amazed at how many people just never look at it. They'll ask questions, but then never go a step further. They'll never log in. They'll never like even try. And it's, 
it's not hard <laughs> to like start to figure it out. Like even even without an engineering background, I can promise you. Totally. I've got like a I've got a communications degree. You do not need an engineering background to understand how to build a Salesforce report. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for sure. Cool, man. Awesome chat. I hope that was helpful on the hire and uh, feel free to come back and let us know how it goes. I'll definitely be back. Hopefully I have something good to share, but thank cool. you. Great to see you. Thanks, Neil. Great to have you. All right. Clark was watching on YouTube, but he came over here so he could ask his question live. I was going to get to your question. I swear, Clark. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Hey, Clark, what's up, man? Good to have you here. Yeah, so I'm a uh, vet in the agency world. And uh, within the last couple of years, I ventured into cybersecurity uh, marketing, specifically because I've, I've always uh, romanticized the field, uh, specifically social engineering, penetration testing, et cetera. And uh, before I made any connection requests, sent any resumes out, I took a couple of months and just shut my mouth and just watched what everyone in the industry was doing, the messaging, the branding, see, seeing who was paying attention to what. And historically, there has always been an extremely strained and, and kind of tumultuous relationship uh, between buyers like CISOs, CIOs, et cetera, and security vendors. And so I, I wanted to uh, try to figure out why. And one of the uh, interesting things that I found was that if you look at the anatomy of a cyber attack, it's very, very close to a marketing campaign to the point where the only difference may be that one of them is legal. And so my question is, what are some of the things, and th these could be as granular an answer as you want, or just you know high-level, heady strategy discussions. I'm really curious to know what your strategy would be to reach an audience that is made up of world-class experts at defending against you. So to clarify for everyone, I'm sure there are people that are going to listen to this podcast afterwards that are cybersecurity vendors that when they hear me say this, they're going to be like, wow, like that hurt, that stings a little bit, but it's true. The reason that there's friction between the CISO and the cybersecurity vendors is because the cybersecurity vendors sell with no respect for the CISO. They take 24-year-old people that are out of college that don't even know what a penetration test is, and they have them make 200 phone calls a day to C-level executives that get no value from what they're doing. They force, but once they get buyers into a conversation, they force them through a terrible buying process. These companies get so much funding, the valuations are ridiculous, so their customer acquisition costs can be three, five, even up to seven years to get customers because of the valuations and things like that. So they don't care about how inefficient it is or how not customer centric it is. But that's why there's that's why there's friction because nobody that's selling from the, the vendor side is actually helping the customer. They're just annoying customers. So right. There there is a lot of ambulance chasing going on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's even it's like uh, ambulance chasing is a little bit different. It's like trying to get people based on fear to buy things. This is right. just just sheer like lack of respect for a C-level executive, in my opinion. Absolutely. A lot of times I've heard I don't have time to save time like you're doing everything wrong. When just uh, interviewing uh, CISOs and just having those conversations with, you know, as an outsider, what's it what's everybody doing wrong? You know, and, and that yeah. seems to be. What's happening? And I don't know this demo. I don't know this demo for sure. I've talked to a couple of CISOs, but I don't have a ton of 
insights to share. But here's what I imagine, because I, I my bet is that every C-level executive at a macro level wants the same stuff in a buying process. They want to do most of the buying independently. They want to be able to get access to the information that they need on their own. They want to be able to understand pricing and how that works without talking to a vendor. They want to consult peers inside of communities. They want to talk to experts from your company when they're ready to engage that can actually help them decide whether or not it's right for them. Right. They want to move through in a buying process efficiently that's respectful of their time and helps them get the job done so that they make a good decision. It's not complicated. It's just prioritizing what the customer wants rather than what the vendor wants. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's one of those industries where there's a huge need for demand gen and uh, understanding the uh, the audience and and just like you said, the process that th- they actually want. Yeah. It's weird though, because they think that they do. De- it's weird because we're. I think we're going to actually going to be the first time saying this publicly. We might actually awesome. rebrand the name of this podcast because demand gen is very misunderstood, and most like cybersecurity companies think that they're doing demand gen. Right. They make two hundred outbound cold calls a day. They run content syndication and they run two hundred thousand dollars a month to collect leads on LinkedIn. And they're like, yeah, we're doing demand gen, right? Right. So we're actually like, I'm thinking about sort of a mini rebrand here because I think the word demand gen has just it's too far gone for like a misunderstanding standpoint right absolutely well yeah uh, great great to get your take you know uh, i've i've been a huge fan for quite some time and you know uh, looking to bring that kind of outside perspective into the industry that i'm i'm in now and uh found a great team to work on yeah the number one thing that i would recommend and i did this we were selling to physicians and after i talked to the physicians it was so clear that we were selling in ways that were completely in conflict with how they wanted to buy right so our entire go-to-market was in friction with what our buyers wanted so i would if you haven't already i would go and talk to customers understand those different types of things that they want qualitatively and then build a survey so you can collect data at more scale that will play in a boardroom that says, this is what our customers want to buy like, this is how we're selling, and then just identify all the mismatches. Yep. Because nobody, it's so strange, like uh, very few companies do. It's like the most simple activity to improve the results in your go-to-market strategy and your long-term strategic planning. And like nobody does it. (laughs) Yeah, that was actually one of the first things I noticed when I got into the industry was there was a lot of LinkedIn content based around like, here's what we need to do. And a a lot of questions saying, well, how do we know what to, just pick up the phone. Just call someone, you, you know, do that research. And it, it was interesting because based on that research, I found out that historically, that's where I uncovered a lot of the disruption and friction within that buying process and within the the vendors and the buyers. And uh, yeah, I was just curious to, to hear your take on that because uh, we're, we're trying to make some some big changes. Cool. Yeah, I think you're definitely on the right track. Question for you. Why do you watch on YouTube and not the Zoom? I'm just I'm collecting insights here. Excellent question. I actually was subscribed to your channel before I knew that mm, this this cool. channel existed. And so when uh, I believe someone, uh, Megan, or someone mentioned that uh, you were taking calls live, I instantly tracked down, how can I, I, I actually <laughs> asked in the chat, hey, I'd love to come on and ask a question. And I was like, oh, this is taking too long. And so I, I just went to the website, get me in there. Nice. Cool. But yeah, you'd been watching the YouTube channel. Then we started doing the YouTube live and then you ended up here. Right. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for the insight. And great to have you on. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.
I got to say we're on live and I'm taking questions more often on the show. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Clark. That was a, a great conversation. Hope to see you back. Oh, you absolutely will. For sure. All right. All Thanks right. so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Another one of my favorites, David. I think he has an observation, a question, a thought. It's always a, a good segment when you come on, David. <laughs> it's a plea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A, a rant, an observation, or a plea. I don't know. First on, what's on that hat? Is it a, is it a pineapple? I didn't see your answer. What is it? It's a uh, cock on a football. <laughs> it's the symbol. It's the you symbol. Asked, Chris. I know. I got, asked, right? <laughs> got what I asked for. <laughs> it's the uh, Tottenham Hotspur symbol, if you will, of their uh, soccer cool. team. All right. So we're going through a difficult period in the market. Absolutely. All sorts of things are happening. We've got lots of people who listen and learn so much about the motions of how to go about doing demand generation in a different way that can be more effective, right? And I guess the, the plea or the observation or the rant I want to kind of open up is how critical it is to have language market fit. So we always talk about product market fit. That seems to be something we always want to have. And that's where the product works and it kind of does as advertised and so forth. But if we don't have language market fit, no one would ever know. So I guess as a marketer, and I've been in the demand gen side of things for ages, much of my career, I didn't have control over the website. So I might do a very successful job of trying to communicate what I've learned from my subject matter experts. And I've been in the IT space. And I used to go to the sales engineers to figure out what, what to communicate about, right? What do customers care about? How do they care about it? And I'd, I would use them as my secret source to my, to my abstracts, my webinars, and so forth and so on. Because they talk to customers all the time at the level the customer is at. Not down at, not above to, but at the level the customer is at, right? Anyway, and then people would come to the website, and then maybe the website wasn't quite as well-tuned. It had a bit more of that corporate lingo, kind of a bit more of that vague language. Sure. It didn't quite yeah. connect. So I guess that's the observation and the plea is to please, what can we do about getting better language market fit if we don't have control over the website, but we do have responsibilities for demand gen? So the only <laughs> the, an, the, 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 the yeah. answer that I come back to every time when where the question is I don't have control over X and I need someone I, I want to improve X, it's always go and talk to the customer and then demonstrate with insights from the customer where the gaps are. Right. So this is it's like I spent you know, the early part of my career trying to convince people that my ideas were right by uh, my opinion, go and talk to three customers and then present it to them. But when they receive it, it's not Chris talked to three customers and now he's saying what what he learned. It's it's Chris's opinion. And so I had to take it a couple steps further. And in certain situations, I would have to bring the CEO to the meeting with the customer, ask them the question so the CEO could hear it from the customer about why they don't want our product. 
why they don't use it, why they're not the right segment, right? So that's one. I might have to run a survey to 500 buyers to demonstrate that the way that we sell is totally misaligned with how our buyer wants to buy. I might have to take screenshots of what people are saying about certain, you know, content or things like that, and then bring that to, you know, someone in the department. But the situation and the details are insignificant. What really matters is that you you have the customer tell someone else that's on your team that it's missing the mark, not you. Right. So bring evidence, right? And the kind of evidence that is that we would all want to listen to. So the voice of the customer. Okay. That's a totally reasonable answer. It's just the second thing that I'll say, this will be a, I think this will be a maybe hit a hit a nerve for a couple of people. Marketers should be in the field testing the messaging that they're developing. They should be talking to buyers. Like, it's so crazy. Like, I still run sales processes at my business so that I can test messaging, so that I can learn about new segments, so I can understand what objections there are. But it's mainly to test the messaging, right? Because I'm asking the team of people on our growth team to go out and as the business evolves, we're adjusting the positioning, we're adjusting the messaging. And I'm asking them to be able to go and figure out how to make that work. So I need to know whether or not it works, just like the advice that I gave, right? To the person that's like, you need to go and build the podcast to prove it out. Like, I'm going to do it so that I know that it's the messaging works, right? So if we're not closing deals, it's because of a different, I'm going to eliminate that variable from the equation. And there's just, there's very few product, mar- it doesn't even matter, the subspecialties don't matter. There's very few marketers that actually test their messaging in a sales environment to know whether or not it works. So that's a, it's a major unlock at this point for people. Like you're going to get a ton of respect from your sales team. You're going to understand that the stuff that you're, that you wrote in your little messaging document why it breaks down when you actually try and present it to a customer. You're going to have way more respect for your sales team. That's why I don't send sales shitty, like shitty MQLs anymore is because I have done the salesperson's job. Know that that would be annoying and not be productive. That was less for you, but more of a note for people. Like you got to be out there testing your messaging in real sales conversations as a marketer. I absolutely agree. And of course, the problem is different in different size organizations, right? So yeah, totally. if your marketing team is seven people big, okay, that's one one way of, you can communicate pretty directly. If it's 70 people or 300 people, yeah, so you might be, you know, it changes the whole game, but the challenge is still somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. It's just how just how much voice you're allowed to have. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to Google today. They have almost 300 people just on their demand gen team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but when it, I think when it comes down to it, I call like the difference product market fit, which is like, does the product help the customer achieve the outcome that they desired within a specific period of time? You have go to market fit. Can I repeatably acquire customers with a specific CAC to LTV ratio that will scale? And you have message market fit. Am I able to message? the product to a specific segment in a way that they understand clearly the value of what we're providing and it resonates with them. So I think that all three of those are necessary parts of the formula and they each need to sort of be figured out and they, and evolved at different stages. Totally agree. I'm, I'm, I'm liking the language of the words, language market fit, 
because it opens it up a little bit beyond just messaging, but it's trying to embody this notion of using the words that they would use. So, for example, and I used this example a few times before, so I'm a bit of a broken record. So if we're, if we're selling to people who use spreadsheets and we're trying to replace spreadsheets and our technology is AI and AI-based, we want to be careful of using the word AI because probably people who are using spreadsheets don't think that they're people who are going to be able to digest an AI because they're using spreadsheets. <laughs> so if, if our language actually turns people away, just because we use a particular word that we thought was cool, the messaging might be right, but the word that we chose was the wrong one. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop here. Um, yeah. Thank you for the, for the observations. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. It's just a, it's an eternal challenge. It is an eternal challenge. I literally talked about it with a with a business today. So like because of how companies silo their marketing and then have KPIs that are be able to trace back to the individual either function or team or actual person, what happens is you it's like the the most obvious one is that you have, you know, you got your paid social team this, I'm talking about enterprise level stuff. You got a paid social demand gen team. You got some agency running paid search for you. You got some company doing S, you know, internal team doing SEO. You got some co- team doing organic social. And they're all fighting to just prove that their channel did something as opposed to using each channel in the way that it's designed to drive a specific outcome. And it's just like, we need to measure marketing holistically across the whole thing, not in each individual. It just creates like, like diminishes the impact that each team could make. And it creates really like unhealthy tension between teams for no reason. It's, uh, it, it is very true. It creates competition because then you'll start competing for resources and attention and accolades and, and all sorts of other, you know, things that go with that headcount power. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But all right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Great to have you on here. Thanks, David. All right. I have a really cool question that was submitted that I have to ask on their behalf. Um, All right. But I, I think, think this, this actually, might, I think could, this might be the last one, just by the way. I was going to say, <laughs> okay, I think this cool. is a perfect closing <laughs> question. We are on the same page, Chris. Sounds good. <laughs> what about companies that are in an established category with other companies already creating demand? What are your tips on how to stand out? or how to differentiate our demand creation? So, so the first thing is I would really, really challenge you to see whether or not the other companies are actually doing it. I'm guessing here, but my guess is like 85 to 95% of categories, there's zero people in the category creating the demand actively. So very few actually have one. So one I would question on that point. And then if you want to differentiate inside of it, there's only one way. Qualitative market research, talk to customers, find the gaps, segment appropriately. So niche down, put together a different product roadmap based on customer insights that have a unique perspective and then go. It's so crazy. The missing link in almost every every so, sort of like strategy question like this one is you need to go and talk to customers right there are like 
if there are 85 to 95% of companies aren't creating demand, then 99% of companies aren't marketing teams, aren't talking to customers. So like these are major opportunities that most people don't do, which allows you to get the insights that help drive what the strategy should be, right? I can't, you're like, this company's creating demand. What do we do to differentiate? I can't be like run LinkedIn ads, right? You actually have to go to the customer, get the, that type of data, figure out where's the hole, what's being underserved, what point of view is resonating here, where are they getting information, where are they buying? There's almost no company out there that's leaning into dark social the way that they should. Almost none. So like, I guess I could give you that answer is like, if they're doing things to quote unquote, create demand, like you could go in with a dark social approach and definitely do better. But the real answer is talk to customers and figure out where the gaps are and get the whole company aligned that this is not like marketing's pet project where we go out and talk to customers and we get the insight and we're like, oh, now we're going to market on Reddit because people said that they look on Reddit. This is like a holistic customer insights need to fuel the whole business strategy. It needs to fuel the product roadmap. It needs to fuel the sales strategy. It needs to fuel how investments are made across the commercial organization. It needs to fuel the demand gen strategy. It needs to fuel the like the category positioning, the future product roadmap. There's so many different things like the insights come in and they need to be used across the whole company. Yeah, that's what I would say. I love it. All right. This was a great AMA night. Let's close it out. Yeah, let's close it out, everyone. Wow. Yeah. If you didn't notice, I was like, Megan, I looked at the time. It's like 9 p.m. Eastern. I have been on the move since 5 a.m. in New York City. It's like, let's go. Um, but I, seriously, I, I get so much energy from coming to these events and I love doing it. So I'm going to be up for a couple more hours now because I'm fired up. But I'll be flying back to Texas uh, tomorrow. I'll be there for a little while for Memorial Day weekend. And then I'll actually be back in Boston and then headed to uh, to Europe for a couple weeks in June for some speaking stuff. So look forward to seeing you all back here. By the way, I know like uh, there was a couple questions on like the, uh, the economic situation and things like that. Like what I'm trying to communicate, there are big things in the news where people are like, where the companies are laying off people and there's like some like quote unquote negative things going on there. Although for a lot of people, like for me, like getting asked to resign from a company was actually the best thing that happened to me. So there's a lot of people that were just laid off. That's going to be, they're going to look back and say that was the best thing that ever happened to me, which is a good thing. But what I'm trying to communicate here is there is a massive opportunity in the market right now. There's a massive opportunity for people that can go out and figure out how to create demand and go into companies and show them how to do that. There's a massive opportunity for individual people to start a consultancy, get promoted, to step up. So when companies need to do more with less, how do you go in there and and transform the business in a time where it really needs it and makes an impact? Every business needs to transform and figure out how to create demand right now, which leaves huge opportunities for everybody on this Zoom and everybody listening to the podcast. For both businesses and individuals, like these are times where you can really break away because businesses are contracting and most people are slowing down, which allows some people to sort of speed up. So I'll leave it at that. There's a there's definitely a lot of opportunity here. I hope all of you take advantage of it and capitalize. And we will see you next Tuesday for Demand Gen Live. 
Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.